Hello, everyone, and welcome to Contingent Workforce Radio, brought to you by Upmost, the only software designed exclusively for Workday customers to source, engage, optimize, spend, and bring visibility to the entire extended workforce. I'm Saad, product marketing here at Upmost, and also have Erica here today. Hi, everybody. It's Erica Novak, head of client services for Upmost, but really just fellow 15-year CW practitioner and lover of the total talent space. Awesome. So today uh, we're going to be talking about an, a really interesting report that we partnered with Ardent Partners. They're one of the research form, firms that kind of focuses in on the contingent workforce space. So we partnered with them on a report um, called the HR Executive Strategic Agenda for the Blended Workforce. And the goal was to understand how are HR leaders tackling some of the major challenges going on with the uh, growth of the contingent workforce, everywhere from contractors, temps, um, consultants. Um, last time we had uh, Dan Beck, our co-founder and CEO, actually chat with their VP of research, Chris Dwyer, about some of the findings. And we wanted to dive in a little bit deeper into some of the more tactical implications of the report. Um, now that the report provides you the strategy, wanted to kind of talk through some specific uh, aspects of it and really dive into some of the details. So um, first question that I wanted to ask Erica, um, and I think Erica's kind of, she's talked a lot about total talent management. So I kind of wanted to like almost bring a devil's advocate approach or just kind of figure out a little bit more um, why, why people aren't pursuing total talent management or total workforce management. Um, the research kind of says that uh, about 43% of the average enterprise workforce is non-employees. Uh, so it seems like that's the kind of reality that we're living in, that it is both non-employees and employees. So I'm kind of curious to ask, like, why is total workforce management polarizing? Is there a case against it? Is there a time when it's a bad idea? It seems like it's reality now, but I'm curious, Erica, like, why is this such like a, a difficult issue to wrestle with? And, um, you know, maybe describe like what total workforce management is to people unfamiliar. First off, Way to hit me with the first shot from the very get going, right? <laughs> Let's just jump right into it. We should have had more banter, but I couldn't think of anything interesting. I didn't want to ask about kids and... <laughs> Sorry, your life, not as interesting. No, um, but you hit with me with a couple different components. So let me just start with, let's actually define total workforce, right? Because let's, I think sometimes there's um, different definitions of it. You hear total talent being talked about on the contingent workforce side, but when you hear it, sometimes it just kind of means all on employees or contractors plus employee, right? So I think what's important when we talk about total talent or total workforce, it's just the idea of you're able to understand your employees and your non-employees together, right? How are you getting work done across the board, right? And then you add total talent management, and that also has had kind of it, I can say this, we'll see, we just this bastardized <laughs> like definition of what that means to different people. And usually it's because they're selling what they believe their solution is. Similar to kind of what we're doing, right? Like again, we think Utmost have, has a strategy for, but I'll say this, before I joined Utmost, and when I was at LinkedIn and at Brightbook Strategies, the idea of total workforce management is just the idea to make data-driven decisions based on understanding your entire workforce. Should you keep doing the same? Should you make a change? And there's a lot of different activities and strategies that can play into it, right? So where I hear a lot of HR teams kind of push back on talent management, that, that's already a well-defined term in the HR space. And so some of the immediate things are, oh, 
I would never do succession planning for, for my contingent workers, right? I would never do, you're not gonna give them benefits. I'm not doing performance management. Maybe they're not involved in my L&D. And for some, I think that's absolutely fair. It doesn't have to be every component of HR. I think Dan said it in a really nice way uh, in his conversation with Christopher is, you know, a consistent process doesn't mean an identical one. And so when I think about to total workforce management, the idea of understanding how work gets done, the who, the what, how do they come in? Was it from an employee? Was it from conversion? Was it from staffing? Was it from a consulting company? Was it from a BPO, right? What are they doing? What was the value? Not always just cost. A lot of contingent is, is, is talked about in ways that they can crush the cost around it, but really it's the value of the dollar, right? We all know that $250 consultant who came in and saved our butts on a project. It's a high spend, but it may have been worth it because it got what you needed done in the next three weeks. Well, sometimes a $25 contractor makes sense, right? So sometimes it's not just the number, it's the value that you get. Then it comes down to the quality. And again, I always go back to, did we know what we were doing and plan for it? Yay or nay. And should we change? Yay or nay. But to me, that's the crux. When you have data to help support and come up with hypotheses and then push strategies on there, to me, that becomes a total workforce management. Did we mean to outsource this or did someone just do it and we go with it? Did we mean to buy, you know, this, this, all these different skill sets that we brought in, but we actually didn't have long-term work for them, right? So, so again, I think the initial question was, is there a bad time for it? But I wanted to kind of start out with the, how we define it and what we think it is, because that'll help in, in like, kind of infer the rest of our conversation, as well as what, what Christopher and Dan were talking about it. All right, so now the crux of the question, right, is, um, is there a case against it? Is it so polarizing? I think the answer is no. Generally, when you break it down like this, Everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. You know what? I would like to know what I'm spending on consulting in this matter. Everyone, it's funny, they, they become very passionate about, that would be great to know. I think, well, it's, it's not always polarizing in the idea of, of doing it. It's usually polarizing the idea of how to do it, right? I actually was talking with um, a client a couple of days ago, and they were talking about this, and it was, you know, how do we put this in front of our CHRO? So, you know, they're excited about it. It comes down to, it's usually it's the business case of the why. There's one of, usually you'd brought up 43%, you know, the total workforce is usually 43%, you know, it's usually non-employees. Usually why it's not up to the CHRO level is they don't have that data. There's no numbers that they say. Sometimes it's about contractors. So in vendor management systems, they'll be, here's your contractor headcount. Usually that's truly about 10 to 12% of the overall non-employee, not always, but typically. So it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But when you start adding in all the other actors that, 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 uh, that your team uses to get work done, that's where you start getting the numbers. And today people don't have systems in place to actually do it. So, so the first thing of why it, it's not a priority is they don't have the data to make it a priority. They don't actually see the numbers. They're not aware. They, you know, again, the awareness is usually, I had no idea they were in these countries or had this assets, right? We're trying to pull information from different systems to get in there. A second is sometimes, CHROs or teams will think, well, I'm doing this for the employees. It doesn't really affect the non-employees. And the answer that I kind of share with other clients is when, you're, when your HR teams are talking about you know, quality of talent, uh, you know, compliance, workforce planning, the cost to hire, productivity, attrition, skills awareness, onboarding, actually your non-employees do play a part into it. And so it's kind of on the CW team's back, whether it's within HR or procurement, doesn't really matter understand what's the most pressing priority for the CHRO and layer in how that actually affects the non-employees from the different classification perspective because those are all people issues 
get handled differently, but it absolutely does matter. And so what I've heard quite a bit is we've gotten it to, we've gotten to the, the HR's hands, but it's priority number nine, right? Because something always is going to be higher. So how do you actually push it up? And that's kind of where I was helped develop some business cases on how do you actually show and develop the problem, not exacerbate it, not make it seem like a fire drill, right? But really just call into compliance. Employee, employee compliance is very important too, but there's a bunch of non-employee compliance that matters, especially when you're a multinational, right? Onboarding and getting people to productivity is especially important, right? For all talents. So there's an integrity and loyalty for them to want to like commit to the purpose and work on your, uh, work on your role or your project, but also more so for consultants and contractors where they're billing whether they have the computer or not. So time is of an essence because they're going to bill you at whatever hourly rate, whether your computer or network access is up. So you want to get that in their hands. So again, I think sometimes it's more about the priority level and how someone's able to sell why it matters and the cost, whether it's a hard cost or, or soft cost. All right, let me pause there because we didn't hit the how, but that was a lot of talking. So do you believe in what I say or do you have questions that you want to go into? Uh, no, I think it's a little bit of like an unknown unknown. It's the, in that you you can't, of course, you don't think it's like a, if a problem if you don't know the problem exists. Um, like you're not going to call a, a plumber when it seems like all your pipes are working fine. But um, if you never knew, then never bothered to examine like part of your pipes were just completely clogged in your basement, then uh, <laughs> yeah, then of course it's not going to seem like a problem until it's too late. So uh, I think, yeah, that's a, it, interesting part that people just don't fully aware aren't fully aware of it but once they do see it it's like oh man we really need to fix those pipes or take control of it so I think that's an interesting aspect of it um no I mean I, I just I still I guess yeah the priority level is really because otherwise it just seems like a no-brainer it's like of course why wouldn't you want to know the total workforce composition and understanding the different spend on different elements it, it just seems like it's it has to be done eventually it's just a matter of yeah as you said priority so and part of it comes from misunderstanding right well i have an hr tool and i have a procurement tool so shouldn't i be able to get the data right and usually leaders at this level you know they're they're so well staffed and time is so critical right well they're not really the ones pulling the reports or attempting to do things there's a lot of assumptions and and not in a bad way but in a, in an assumption of I'm assuming my finance team can get this for me and are capturing the same data points that I think are important and vice versa, right? Procurement's thinking, you know, HR has this. And what you come to find, and this has happens in almost every system that's implemented, is no. Even things as simple as name or worker name, right? Are names something different, but everything else are captured very differently, right? And they're not tied back to each other. So yes, you have these systems, but they don't talk to each other. The naming convention's wrong and they're not asking the same questions. And so it's a crazy amount of manual work that le really usually leads to data they kind of say, I don't fully trust. I can kind of do cost by, kind of by cost by vendor, but I can't break it down into skills or projects or outcomes or workers by rates, uh, by total milestones and compare that to my employee workforce, right? So yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a very interesting problem, but usually when you, when you take away all the buzzwords, and you take away, like, would you like to understand how work is getting done fully at your company? Usually the first thing that comes to mind is, like, well, I do with my employees. You say, what about the other half? And that's where, when you have the data and the visibility to how many folks that is, by which suppliers, by which location, by skills, by costs, it becomes very eye-opening. I had no idea we were doing work this way. Okay, 
now you do. Now you can kind of plan that strategy. Got it. And, and thinking about the priorities again, so we're obviously in the midst of a, a major crisis um, with COVID and um, larger uh, societal issues against racism. Um, so with that in mind, of like maybe all these dual or multiple kind of trends going on, does that, you think, make a greater case or does it become a higher priority now or, or does this in some ways pose a, um, you know, with COVID, does that mean it's, it's less important? Like how does, how does the current crisis um, affect how we should be prioritizing something like total talent management? Oh, no. And Dan had such a great quote in his interview with Christopher, and I loved it. And it was something to the effect of, you know, crises don't care about your preferences or your priorities, right? And I'm so, so golden because it's incredibly true, right? When S hits the fan, <laughs> everything moves out of the way and becomes this. And so, again, without wanting to answer, like in an ambulance chaser way, I think it does increase because I think what people recognize is the ability to say who's doing what and are they essential or not? And then people went, are they critical or not, right? Really, I think people started to examine what type of data they actually had on their workforce. And while they felt like, okay, you know, if, um, if I have this from the employees, okay. But then if you have that CW partner as an advocate who's able to say, but what about all these badge only workers who are in this office that you need to communicate? And there's 19 suppliers that are part of this. How are you gonna, how are you gonna chat with them? And some have computer access and some don't. Um, uh, my neighbor actually I was talking to and she was saying it felt weird with her company is all the employees were given a laptop and a monitor and all the contractors weren't, right? And at one point it was a, uh, it was a, a decision and then it actually got overturned because I thought that actually wasn't right. We're asking them to do the same amount of work or whatnot. So the, the, the people who are able to speak on behalf of the different classifications matter. And so I think right now with COVID, it's, you know, it really does matter if you're reopening, who's coming back, who used to be there, who should be there now. Um, a lot of things that are outsourced, when I think about data centers, right? They're not employees who are moving on that. Like, what's your communication to them? So I think the recognizing the lack of data that they had on that non-employee workforce has really kind of brought people together to say, how do we get this? So I think it actually has increased it, right? And then the idea of if we're, if we're doing all this work now because of the crisis, how do we actually keep it up so it's not a crisis? So the next go round or when we're doing workforce planning, whether it's a return to work, or how we bring employees back, or do we bring contractors back? It's not a fire drill. It ends up being, we have this data, here's how we collect it. So I think it's actually probably increased people's mindfulness of there's more people at work than just employees. So I have a question that kind of now relates back to that, that kind of um, brings to mind like what companies are doing in response to the, the change in, um, in, in work and change in that um, COVID has brought with like more remote work. So this is like a specific one of just, you know, like Twitter or Square, they kind of said, you know, now we're employees can work for work from wherever, like permanently, we're not going to be thinking about um, bringing them back into the office. And, and I imagine there must have been like some conversation also, like what are the implications for contractors um, or, you know, the extended workforce in general. So curious just to kind of like unpack something like that, like if you say this is the case for employees, like what are the questions that one would need to be thinking about for the extended workforce? If Twitter's HQ is a functionally for employees is like optional, maybe you can come in, but for the most part, you can work from wherever. Like what should people be thinking about when it comes to their extended workforce when you make those policies for employees in this world? 
Yeah, no, I, I think onboarding is probably the thing that comes to mind immediately. So I was just talking with one of our SI partners and he was working with the company and their IT policy has almost always been come in on your first day, we'll give you a laptop, but your first sign in has to be in the office, right? Well, now in the way of COVID, no one's going into the office, right? So employees who already have theirs, no problem. But when you're working with new consultants or new contractors, that's a process that has to be completely undone, right? But uh, we got to change it. Uh, I think the ideas of computers and what we give to non-employees may change, right? So there's an idea of VDI where they can actually use their own equipment and then you enable them specific access into what, what you want to versus giving them a laptop. I bet you more and more people are going to be looking at that. On the flip side, if you still want to give them computers, right, getting that home address because now you're shipping things to them. But who's shipping things to them because there's no longer, right, a shipping and receivings in your company that's able to do that in a very efficient manner. And then how do you get it back, right? How do you track that personal mail address? Who, you know, who's responsible for it? Is it the worker? Is it the supplier? Is it the manager? When is it deleted? So I think the idea of getting folks onboarded and ramped is going to be something that's important. And again, simple things like on-site, off-site. And if so, off-site, is it a vendor office or a home office? These things matter when you're thinking about how you're communicating with people and processes, right? Badge only with a laptop with network access. Like there's, there's very different distinctions um, on what you think about. And again, it's very similar to employees. So bringing that back to total workforce, right? These are very similar things. I've been a remote employee for about, ah, uh, like, five to six years or so, uh, you know, I was tagged as an employee, but also remote. I have full access. Usually with employees, it generally is full access. With non-employees, it has a more metering of different types of access or whatnot. But getting equipment into people's hands has become very important. Got it. I want to kind of dive into some of the stats from the report. Um, one of the stats that um, Chris um, found in his uh, uh, research was, 70% of HR leaders state that access to top tier skill sets and expertise is the core reason for contingent workforce growth. And the fact that it's he's kind of interviewing HR leaders and HR leaders are citing that as a reason for the workforce, uh, uh, contingent workforce's growth. Um, he sees it as HR is central to the future of work. Um, but when it comes to extended workforce, it kind of sometimes sits under HR, sometimes under procurement. Um, so my question is, does this total talent management need to fall under HR? Is HR more like a first amongst equals when it comes to this? Or um, are they the full-on leaders or should they be the leaders um, is, is my question. Yeah, and honestly, this is probably the question I get asked the most, right? Is who's supposed to own it, right? And I think we know today, today's uh, demographics, it's generally split pretty evenly between HR and procurement, right? If I had my way, if all things considered equal and I got to design the thing, I would say HR because it is about people. It's putting people to work. It's about skills. It's about making sure they're productive. Um, and so again, if I had my way and we are starting from scratch, I would say absolutely. Because HR should be able to help when we're talking with the business and it becomes business decisions. How are you getting work done? How do we help make that better? Right, what are the right sourcing channels? Do you have successions? Are you skilled in the right way? Do we need to bring outside people? Right? Those are very HR-related questions that you want to arm them with data from procurement, finance, and HR together. Right? However, let's be honest. 
we're 22 years past VMS being implemented. We're 22 years past, but there are phenomenal pro, pro, uh, procurement leaders. And this is where I think some total workforce solutions or total talent management will never happen. This right here is because in some people's eyes, they think you have to completely reorg how a massive multinational enterprise is doing work. And I think the answer to that is no, you don't. Right, you absolutely don't. That's, that's gonna make people say, absolutely not. If you're starting as a, as a startup or a small medium business, you have an opportunity to do things differently. And I would definitely encourage you to do things differently when you think about like the collaboration, the partnership. But the short answer is procurement actually can help lead this, but it should be a partnership, right? It should definitely be a partnership when you're thinking about um, who's responsible for what, what data, putting together what, who's responsible for which data, making sure it's clean and pushing it together, right? And how do you actually go back to the business? Generally, you have category managers in procurement and HRBPs in HR. Those people should be talking, right? Should be looking at the same data and say, did you know? And then coming to the business with, here are my insights, right? So to me, that, that becomes the, uh, the second step, right? Getting the data is the first one and getting the data that you can trust, Right, because the first way to get a manager to get to shoot you out of the office or off a Zoom call is if he's able to poke holes in the data that you have because it hasn't been updated, he doesn't trust it, he's been burned before. So having that, that core system or record that you feel really good about is the first. And then making sure procurement folks and HR team are speaking to one another about what they've seen the business actually do. Not what they've heard from other folks or other things or use cases they heard. It needs to be what you've heard this team actually do. And then you can talk about it because usually they get very different points of information. And so to me, that's the starter pack, right? That is a starter pack. And then you go from there because at that point, the, the business is going to start pulling you guys both in. And you're going to hear a lot more about what those teams need, those VPs, those budget managers are looking for. And now again, there's probably three to six other steps to go for, but it's going to be dependent on what your business is doing and what your goals are. But without those first two, you can't, you know, you can't really do anything. I think the other part to that, again, kind of, kind of comes down to that governments or rules and responsibilities, which sometimes sound overly formal and become a checkbox, but it really is like, who's responsible for compliance? Who's responsible for the overall operations? Who's responsible for the relationships? Who's responsible uh, for the data? right? Figuring out what that looks like and how often you speak and what's important that both folks need to know. I mean, those are the kind of like, that's the starter package of how you start to build this up. And what's interesting is when suppliers understand that you guys are looking at both sides, it starts to matter. When you're actually able to have real conversations about how work is getting done, which suppliers you trust, which suppliers you want to be pushing more work to, or you can actually pulling more work from, Aqua hire is very common in this case. We've been paying this one vendor this much money for seven years. Why don't we just bring their people in house? Right? It's a very common thing, but without the data, again, from kind of outsourcing or consulting uh, um, SOWs and, and, and individual data, you can't have that conversation. And again, you need that on from the HR side to understand what's been going on, but also like, is this the right time for the business to think about that type of stuff? So, um, long-winded way of saying i do if i if i had my choice i i bring it back to hr especially if we're going to start saying i'm a chief people officer especially if we're going to start saying i'm a chief empathy officer if people are people then it absolutely matters the people who are still doing work for you that are not your employees got it i wanted to kind of uh, zone in on what it seems like a very central aspect of 
total talent management. It's kind of been a thread throughout the entire conversation. The idea of uh, data about um, intelligence, about how work is getting done, I think is how Chris mentioned it in his report or in the webinar with uh, Dan. Um, in his research, he dives into this a little bit further and says uh, only 17% of the folks that he surveyed have integrated total data functionality today, but about 75% expect to have them by 2022. Uh, but I wanted to dive into like, what is the data that you really need to have total talent intelligence and uh, maybe even start with what's the, as you mentioned, like the starter pack of the data that you should be accessing and reporting on to really bring you to total workforce management. First, let me say I was so excited by that, right? Because I think even a year ago, that stat would have been different, right? And it, it kind of goes back to the first question you asked me, like, do you think because of COVID, it's increased the priority decrease? I think this stat right here kind of demonstrates that it's increased it. But we don't have the data. Teams go figure out how to do how to get the data, and they basically gave them 18 months to do so, right? <laughs> So, I mean, that gets me really excited because it is the idea of, okay, how do we actually, how do we actually do this? What's important to it? And so, you know, at the very gut of it, I'm gonna give you a high level long list of, of things, but again, it, it's something that's not just heads, right? Head by location is, 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 is fine, but it's much more about heads. And people will say it's co-employment to capture this. And I would strongly disagree with that. I think the fear and the ghost of co-employment and compliance for about 10 years we were sold a bill of goods about co-employment and again there are co-employment issues but the idea of you can't you can't you can't you can't you can't right you can it is important there's operational readiness that you need to understand what's going on in your company it's not a co-employment thing so let me start by saying that i know i'll have some haters send me notes saying you can't you can't and i would say prove it to me but when i think about what's important in total talent intelligence right it's the idea of understanding headcounts is where you start right but then it's titles and i think it's important to map as much as you can on the job taxonomy so if we talk we if we're using workday lingo an idea of a, what's a job profile right and what can you do and you can usually do this with contractors of kind of maps a job title to a job profile just kind of doing some a to a comparisons or so but there is should also be contingent workforce taxonomy you know in your systems does qa engineer show seven different ways quality assurance engineer capital Q, capital A engineer, lowercase q, lowercase, you know, there's some mapping that you can do to start kind of figuring out and cleaning up how folks are bringing people in, but understanding the job titles, because that's gonna go back with skills, skills and capabilities, right? So then it becomes cost. Is it a pay rate, is it a bill rate, is it a milestone deliverable? How are they attributed back up to the body of work? Uh, classifications, what type of workers are they? Is it a, is it a you hear full-time employees a lot, FTE, Actually, it's kind of regular employees because then you have full-time, part-time, interns, which are actually kind of a fixed-term contract employee, which are used a lot in Europe. Sounds like a contractor, but it's actually an employee with an end date, right? So then you have that type of employee, and then you have all the different types of non-employees, right? So you people are used to hearing contractor, freelancer, small business, consultant, outsource vendor, but then you have joint ventures, business partners, board members, right? So understanding what they are because it's going to matter on uh, uh, operational needs as well as as well as compliance and costs. So, sorry, heads, heads, titles, costs, uh, skill sets, capabilities, classification. Are they on or off site? We already talked about on site at my campus or off site at a vendor office. 
or offset at a home office matters? Uh, do they have certifications that are needed for the type of work that they're doing? Are they up to date? Are there trainings that they need to have completed or do within a certain time period? What onboarding docs were required to have them signed? Uh, and then what do they have with provisioning? Do they have a laptop or not? Do they have a cell phone or not? What access do they have? So to me, those kind of become the, the basis of when I think about total talent intelligence and how we start doing comparatives and we start understanding how work is getting done. Those are the core features that I'm excited, that I'm excited to help people get. Great. Um, I think we're at a wrap for a time, but if people want to dive into some of the additional details, uh, they can check out the show notes for the full report from Ardent Partners, the HR Executive Strategic Agenda for the Blended Workforce. Um, but I think the oh, some of the things that uh, Erica just pointed out of that starter pack of the uh, of where to start to get the data, uh, really interesting. And might drop another article from the past on what are the benefits of total talent management that we've also um, written about. Um, but in the meantime, um, appreciate you all listening today. Um, so this has been Saad, the product marketing at Utmost, and Erica, final sign off as well. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Again, if you have anything to add, feel free to reach out to us uh, at LinkedIn um, or just email us directly. Happy to continue the conversation.